Hello and welcome to episode 61 of the Large Format Photography Podcast. My name is Andrew Bartram and I'm joined by Eric Matthew and Alice Tomlinson. Hello, Eric. Hello, Andrew and Simon in the background. And hi, Alice. <laughs> and hello, Alice. Hello, thank you for having me. Hi, Alice. Well, it's great to have you um, back on the show after all the COVID madness. Uh, thanks for thank, been a while. Thanks for, thanks for being with us. Before we um, before we just go any further, just to say thank you to Frank Thorpe for being our last guest, which was um, about a month ago. Yeah, so, yeah. there we are. Yeah, Alice and- Frank. I don't know if you know Frank Thorpe. He photographs with a large format camera at the Capitol building in America. Oh, wow. And he, oh. he was there on that fateful day when it was stormed, you know? Yeah, wow. Mm-hmm. And, and he did a project called 100 Days After the Riot or something like that. And we photographed 12, 12 individuals in the locations they found themselves during the riot, you know? So right. um, leader of the house and... Um, uh, Mitch Romney, a cafeteria worker who like locked himself worker. into a closet. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I will. So, that sounds extremely interesting. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it, it, it was good. So, Alice, um, 2000 and 2019. So, if folks want to just listen to all of Alice's bio, they can go back and listen to show 16. So, we'll just take a pause while you go and do that. Yeah, go do that. Do that. Which is 16. Good lord! That's, that's it was a while ago. That so is now a while ago. So now, welcome back, and thank you for um, uh, thank you for coming back with us, and, and welcome back to our guests who've just gone off to listen to show sixteen. So when you came on last, Alice, it was uh, the end, I think, pretty much of your five year ex voto project, mm-hmm. which um, documents landscape and people and faith, and you travel through Lords and Ireland and. Um, Poland. Where else did you go? Eastern Poland. Yeah. Oh, and Poland. Yes. Uh-huh. And just and I reread. Sorry, I reread oh, no. the I reread the introduction to your book, which accidentally is now out of print, isn't it? Well, yeah. Now out of print. Out. It is out of I print. Yeah. I couldn't see a copy for less than one hundred and fifty pounds on uh, ah, online. So I think a bit silly, but yeah, it is out of print for the moment. You can yeah. find me on copy online. I think. You can find the uncopy. So I reread the, um, to remind myself a little bit about it, and I listened to bits of the previous podcast. But really, to sum up, um, Martin Luther and people like Calvin were rallying against uh, pilgrimages and what they meant, and maybe the commercialization of relics and stuff. So you sort of went back and looked at modern day pilgrimages and what people left behind on their journeys, and you ended up photographing bits of relics in the landscape. And indeed, some of the people you met on the way—is that a fair summation of X Photo? Yes, I mean, I, I can I can talk for hours about X Photo because it was a big yeah, part, I know, but big part of my life for a long time. But yes, <laughs> it was exploring the X Photos themselves, so the objects that people leave as kind of gestures of their devotion, and the portraits, or it was portraits of the pilgrims in these sacred sites and the wider landscape. So there was three kind of strands. But yes, you some you I think you summarised it pretty well. That I spent hours researching, <laughs> yeah, as I always yeah. do. When you, um, when we, when we left that recording, you'd been given uh, some prize money, I think, to go off and do something with Sony. So you were working on a video project with Vera, which does not sound like a Belarusian nun, but anyway. Um, and oh, I think you've yes. been, you've been oh. back four times. 
You've been like back four times. Okay. So we, this was in 2019. Is that correct? Probably. Yeah. 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 Um. Yes. So I was given some money by Sony, a grant, and the idea was that I could use the grant for whatever I wanted. And my plan at that point was to use the grant to finish Exvoto, which at that point wasn't complete. And obviously Exvoto was all shot on a large format camera and 5.4 and black and white film. So I thought, well, great, I've got some extra money. I'll use this grant money to finish the Exvoto project. And then I remember them saying, well, that's fine. And we'd like to give you the money, but just to let you know that with the grant money, the kind of proviso of you having this grant is that it all has to be shot using Sony equipment. So of course, that was like a bit of an issue for me because having spent five years shooting on large format camera to suddenly switch to digital, mm-hmm. well, it just wouldn't have worked. It's a completely different way of working, but I didn't want to lose the opportunity of the grant. So I decided to explore the life of one of the nuns at that point called Vera who had had a very very big influence on me when I met her and photographed her for Exvoto and she had become the kind of most significant portrait or photograph that I'd taken for that project because she was an incredibly enigmatic and kind of beguiling character and I knew she had many layers and stories to tell so I went off to Belarus um, for the first time to stay with her in her monastery and have now, now four years down the line, we are, I'm co-directing it with um, a woman called Cecile, who actually assisted me on Exvoto. And we're now at the stage where we're actually doing kind of test screenings, which is why I have to dash after this, because we have another test screening oh. of the rough cut. So we're at the rough cut cool. stage and it's become a documentary feature film, which is something that I <laughs> never expected because I thought it was going to be a week in Belarus making like a six minute film about her life. But her life is so interesting and surprising and kind of powerful, her story, that it really demanded more time. So it ended up being a feature film that has been supported. We're lucky we're supported by Sundance Institute. So the Sundance Documentary Fund have supported it. And we're now at the stage where it actually feels that it's going to become something that um, after four years of work and research and visits, and her story shifting, as of course, over that time, and also us getting to know her on a different level. So our, my relationship with Vera has gone from making some photographs of her in a forest in Grabarka in Poland, when she was an Orthodox nun, to now photographing her in a very new chapter of her life in France. So there's a big twist to the story, which you can probably guess, but I'm not going to make it explicit. We won't put, we won't put any spoilers. Happened. Something spoilers made happened, yes. Yeah, yeah, so I, I, I can guess, but we won't, we won't put <laughs> spoilers yeah. 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 As with life, something happened. Something yeah. major happened in her life that we were not expecting, and to a certain extent she wasn't expecting, and her life has taken a huge turn, and we've documented that as well. <laughs> they're kind of a third chapter to the story we weren't expecting. And that's one of those things, too, like right? especially... Like when you start to get involved with somebody, like it's it's never just photographing someone if you're doing a documentary, because you inevitably, if they're going to allow you into their lives, you're going to see things that they typically, in the long run, would never have really shown people. And as long as you treat those moments with respect, then this trust builds. And all of a sudden, when those unexpected moments happen, like you said, like she, there's a twist, like mm-hmm. as M. Night Shyamalan would say, and you're there, it's just natural to allow you to be there and mm. be a, in your own way, be a part of it. Um, because, I mean, do you find when like, during, over the course of this documentary, right, which you didn't mm-hmm. expect to be a full-length thing, mm-hmm. um, 
it's a little difficult not to be to be just an observer, isn't it? Because oh, you're there yeah. to document, but then you get to know them. You're there with these really intimate moments. And when the camera's not up, mm-hmm. you can't pretend that you didn't just experience that with them. It's a very you know difficult mean? role because I think, obviously, a photograph is generally more fleeting in terms of the actual image making. Right. With a film, I'm spending long periods of time in the monastery around Vera, and I'm learning about her all the time. And there is this build, this kind of, um, yeah, building of a relationship and essentially a friendship. But there's also a line there, like, you know, mm-hmm. as a documentary maker, what line do you draw between being very invested in that post person emotionally and actually beginning to, you know, care about them as a friend, as a confidant, but also needing to get what you have to get for the film and for the footage. So it's quite, and this is very new to me because mm-hmm. this is the first time I'd been involved in filmmaking. So it feels very different from being a photographer in that sense. Like I always feel as a photographer that I have a kind of duty of care, if you like, like when I'm photographing someone, it's very important to me that they're photographed with dignity, they're photographed with respect. And I take an awful kind of, I take a lot of care over composing the photograph and how I present that person. And with the film, it's a different, it's kind of on a different layer because you're invested in their life in a different way. And actually what was interesting with the film is that when this like life-changing decision happened, initially she didn't want us to film her. So it was very difficult because we knew that this was so fascinating and interesting and kind of brilliant for the film, but it was also an incredibly kind of raw time in her life. And she was very vulnerable and she didn't know what direction her life was going to take. And she didn't want us around. And it's like, how do you persuade, you kind of want to persuade them that, they should allow you into their life. But at the same time, you want to give them space to be able to be comfortable with the decision they've made. So it was a very much just kind of steep learning curve for me and how you deal with these very personal relationships, which you never really expect to get to that point. Like when I first met her and I first photographed her, it was half an hour, yet she had this kind of quite, I would say, profound and powerful effect on me. I didn't know if I would ever see her again. Now, you know, she was texting me yesterday, we're in contact a lot, and we're leaving each other voice messages. And it's just very, I mean, in lots of ways, it's, it's very fascinating how your kind of role shifts. But obviously, there's an element of you that wants to stay kind of objective. And if you become mm-hmm. too subjective, then there's going to be a bias there, or you're going to be representing her in a kind of skewed way. So yes, it's been it's been challenging in some ways to make that shift between photographer and filmmaker. And as her life has made this very dramatic kind of change, like I followed her with, you know, with the co-director, we've made a decision that we want to follow her, but it actually, in the end, I had to very directly say to her, this is what we want for the film. And are you prepared to give us that? Are you prepared to work with us and collaborate on this? Because this is what we want to do. And we feel your story is so important and in the end, she said yes, but it was almost like this negotiation process that I haven't really had to do so much with photography. Yeah, it's um, it's really interesting because I've I've got a background in photojournalism and and oh. and emphasis in documentary photography, um, and I hadn't really thought before about the difference between like doing a documentary with still um, versus documentary with with video or film. Not not still. I don't, I don't know what the current term is for for, for is yeah. that movie? Is it that I don't even know. Image or film or yeah, you know. Um 
and when you're shooting stills, like you're you're in there, you're there for those moments. Sometimes you're obnoxiously close with a, a wide angle lens, but you're and you feel invested. But at the same time, you I guess you're right. You do have the ability to sort of like be a bit more in the background. Whereas with a video camera, like an audio, like you're it's much mm-hmm. it's much more much more um, up in up in their business. I'm not sure what the word I'm looking for, but much more immediate upon the person you're you're yeah. doing the work of. Uh, on mm-hmm. um so that's that's really interesting i have to i have to sort of think that because i've always thought it was photography being much the same way you described as video but you've done both and you're saying video is much more intense and immediate and well i mean maybe not always but for me it, it it's turned into a different level of responsibility because okay. i've never done a photography project where i've and obviously some photographers do but my up until now my encounters with people in photography have been relatively fleeting. Okay. So I, I've spotted someone or I've seen someone or I've wanted to tell their story, but it's been something that's been over a relatively short amount of time. Okay. So it's not comparable to building a relationship with someone over right. like four years. And of course, some photographers do work in that way. They'll work with a family or one person over a number of years. But up until now, that wasn't the way I worked in terms of my image making. So it is a different way of working and you're kind of uncovering layers. And it feels to me that you're getting, for me, I'm getting like deeper into someone Mm -hmm. in a way that my photography and whether this is part of using a large format camera as well. For me, when I use a large format camera, what I enjoy about it is that there is, there's a connection, but there's also some kind of distance. So you need to engage with them on one level, but there's also a kind of slight barrier and it's not exactly a disconnect but there's something there that's almost preventing you from going too close. And part of that is the time it takes to set up, the mm-hmm. consideration, the precision that you need. Filming, like a lot of the time, we were just following her life as it was happening. So in a sense, although a lot of the film is you know, framed very carefully, it's composed very carefully, and it's an extension of Exvoto, there's also moments that are much more where we're just going with the moment. And that's something that I'm not used to doing when I'm making my photographs. So it allows you to kind of access someone on a different level. And as a result of that, there's feels like, for me, it feels like there's a bigger responsibility because like you mentioned, I'm not just telling someone's story through, through visuals. I'm telling someone's story through their words and through audio and through sound and through soundscape as well. So it's in some ways, it's a richer way of telling someone's story, but it's also a way of storytelling that you have to be much more kind of careful of because there's all these elements that are coming together. Right. And actually that that brings me to a question I had uh, looking at your, uh, your bodies, multiple bodies of work, um, which are lovely, by the way, Uh, like really lovely. (laughs) It seemed to me that you, starting with Exvoto and, and other projects and now um, the, the the body of work you're shooting in, in Northern Italy um, with, with, with dress and, and culture and whatnot, that you really seem to be drawn to perhaps not necessarily religion, but to ceremony. People who are really involved in even the prom photos, mm-hmm. right? They're, these are kids who are like, this is one of the biggest ceremonies of their teenage life, you know, getting the full dress up and the corsage and, um, and so you seem to be really drawn to, to things that are heavily laden with ceremony of some kind or, or deeper meaning, religious or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find that your choice of, of large format camera, you're drawn to that for the same reason? Because large format, as you just said, like there's, it's very ceremonious. You set it up, you, get, you take a photo, you pose them, you know, you tell them not to move, whatever. 
Um, and in and of itself, it's much more of a ceremonious way of taking images than just, you know, grabbing the Sony a seven full frame and, and popping mm -hmm. off 30 frames. Um, do, do you think there's oh, a parallel with that or? Oh, definitely. There is, it's, for me, there's a ritual and a rhythm to working with a large format camera. And, you know, I don't know if I'm always going to work with large, you know, I don't know. I'm not saying like, I'm always only going to work in right. 5.4 or 10.8 or whatever. But for, for the moment, the subject matters that I'm choosing to photograph, whether it's religion and faith or it's tradition and identity, like my more recent project, or like you say, it's these teenagers who've had their kind of rites of passage, like stolen from them. There is a there's a kind of ritualistic element to that. And for me, working in large format, there it's, it actually becomes quite meditative for me in a sense. I'm not mm -hmm. saying I'm kind of like omming under the <laughs> under the cloak, you know, it's not to that extent. But there's there, there's a pattern to the way you work and there's a way you have to think. And I always think with large format, it's so simple, yet there are so many things that can go wrong. <laughs> you know, the amount of time we've all double exposed or yeah. um, you know, opened the back and not realized and i mean there's so many or have the shutter open and take yeah that so stop down off of the preview exactly like there's so many things that can easily go wrong yet on one level it's very simple so for me no certainly it kind of mirrors the rituals and the ceremonies like you say that i photograph for me that's mirrored in the way i work with large format but i think also i was thinking recently about why i'm kind of drawn to these notions or these themes of faith and devotion and ritual and identity and they're things that I don't really have in my life on a daily basis um and I think there's something about that that to me is very intriguing and fascinating and that I learn from and actually that's why for instance when I first started ex voto okay I come from I would say a I mean agnostic or atheist background you know I don't come from a religious background if you like um, and so it was quite surprising to my family that I was spending all this time in Lourdes and at these pilgrimage sites. They weren't discouraging of it anyway, but it was, it was, you know, it wasn't an obvious kind of choice for me in terms of topic. But I've realized as I've kind of got older and my work's developed that actually for me it's always about exploring kind of the unknown. So trying to uncover and understand why people feel this way, why they're motivated by this, you know, what these traditions mean to them. And although my latest project, which is called uh, Lisolani, which is the Islanders in Italian, it, it isn't about faith as such, but there are definitely overlaps with Ex Voto in terms of there are certain themes there um, that, that, yes, that kind of connect with, with belief and with faith and with the relationship between landscape and person, with the relationship between person and their environment. So there are certain themes that are definitely kind of, evolving but that are also that are also kind of common themes to my work and that even comes down to the teenagers like you say I, I made a whole series called Lost Summer and that was documenting teenagers in my neighborhood who'd been you know very much affected by COVID as we all had and they'd had these big rites of passage kind of taken away from them so there were no proms anymore they just left they kind of left school without really leaving school they'd just been told not to come back their exams had been cancelled and it was a very 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 odd time for them and I wanted to document them in a sense to give them their own space and to allow them to kind of have a sense of how they would feel had they gone to their prom so the right. idea behind that series was that it was local teenagers dressed up 
the kind of the prom that had never happened. But even with that, there is a ritual in terms of the dressing up and them getting ready for a photograph and them getting prepared for the photograph. And there is an element of planning, I suppose, in that sense that goes into mm. my image making. There's, um, I, I just wanted to take you back in, in a moment to a link between filmmaking and, uh, and still photography. But while you're on that subject, um, proms. When when I was at school, we never had proms. Eric, look, it's another thing. Really? You people, you're no, we never American. had it. <laughs> no, you, it's it's come over here from too many yeah, American it's movies. An import. It's an American import. It is. So I'm Sorry. not quite sure when it happened. So I, <laughs> now you see, our, when our, our daughter's 24, son's 25, 26 this year, and both of them had proms. I said, what? What? You mean we, they've got to go out and buy dresses? Well, he didn't, you know, but I mean, he could. I mean, nothing wrong with it. He could mm-hmm. have done, uh, but he chose to, you know, have a suit. And mm-hmm. Georgia had a prom dress. And and, they, and he said, well, and you've got to go in a special car? I said, no. I said, well, actually, I can go with someone else. And people are going to all these great lengths, and there's this great ritual and ceremony around it, you know, and it's uh, they're gathering on a lawn outside our um, uh, the school that they're at and, People were photographing in in a very you know in the way that you did for your project you know and and so it's really interesting the way these things have travelled over and I'm, I I can't silly work Americans. out I can't work out whether it's a a good or a bad thing but I suppose it marks all these things are marking stages aren't they and it's a bit yeah. like ritual and tradition they're things to look back on and they're things to mark stages in our lives whatever you whatever you think of uh, of them as, as individual ceremonies. And I think they're really, they are really significant for for the, the young people themselves. I mean, we yeah, may I, think have, so. I think obviously the prom is a kind of American phenomenon originally, or in terms of it's come to us, I think, from the States. But, and I'm the same as you, like I didn't have a prom, but we had like a leavers ball at sixth form. And it's an opportunity for people to get together, to celebrate together, to kind of, you know, celebrate their achievements to celebrate their friendships to celebrate their communities and when that's just completely you know kind of taken out of the equation and when that's not allowed to happen I think there is a real sense of kind of loss there um so yeah yeah, I mean I think it can go completely extreme in the same way that weddings can with people spending ten thousand pounds on dresses and getting stretch limos and that kind of thing but actually I suppose I was more interested in the more the kind of simpler aspect of it which was the kids just getting dressed up in you know their best clothes if you like to kind of celebrate together and to mark this occasion together and when that was taken away from them that was something that I felt you know when I had you did that was that a project in 2020 was it um yes it was so that was from gosh I think June to August 2020 and um it was when we were all kind of in and out of lockdown Mm. so at that point I wasn't able to travel to Italy for the project that I had was very much in its kind of infancy that I'd started and I was very frustrated as a lot of photographers were with not being able to move on projects that I had started because we weren't able to travel. So I began to look much closer to home, really in my immediate neighbourhood. And that was when I started talking to friends I had who had teenage kids and they were saying how a lot of their children had been stuck in their bedroom for weeks or months. And there was this kind of listlessness and this ennui was setting in and they had no, they felt that they had no purpose. And 
you know, all the time we were kind of reliant on this one hour of outdoor. Yeah, I know. We yeah. Were so, um, so the parks and these public spaces became very important in that in that respect. So that was when I got the idea to actually just go around my local neighbourhood. And it was the first project I'd done in a while where I was very reliant just on my kind of locality and surroundings. And I think that was very good for me because I think in the past I've always been like, right, I need to go two weeks to Italy to shoot this project or I need to go to Poland for a week to go to this pilgrimage site. And actually it made me realise, which is no big revelation, but it made me realise that, of course, there are interesting and fascinating stories on your doorstep if you're if you're open to them. It doesn't, you don't need to jump on a plane to make an interesting photo story. So that's when I started documenting teenagers in my in my neighbourhood who had all had their proms cancelled. And of course, with teenagers, like they all went to completely different schools, but there's always this kind of crossover. So, you know, half of them used to just hang out at the park together. So mm-hmm. a lot of them ended up knowing each other, even though I didn't I didn't set out to have them all know each other. But there are many connections between the, the teenagers I photographed. And also I was very conscious because I live in, you know, it's a very kind of diverse neighbourhood and that needed to be represented through the photography, but that actually happened very kind of naturally. So, you know, one team would say, oh, you should photograph my friend. And then they'd send me a WhatsApp for them and then I'd get in touch. So it ended up, it was a very condensed project because it was all over, yeah, 12 weeks. And when the schools, when people started going back to school, that felt like a natural end to the project. So that's when I kind of stopped shooting. And at that point I'd shot 44 teenagers and actually what I made I made a decision about that project that I hadn't ever really done before which was that I didn't edit anyone out so I shot 44 teenagers and 44 teenagers are all in the final project and in the book that I self-published because I felt that they'd been kind of through so much individually and collectively that it just didn't feel right to me to kind of exclude anyone so as a result there are portraits of course I've got my favorites you know I've got Samuel's one of my favorites Precious is one of my favorites I've got these kind of teens who are my favorites whether that's when I met them they had a particular impact on me or the actual final photograph is is stronger than others but I made a decision that although some portraits would perhaps not be visually as strong as others it was really important to the project overall that every teenager had their kind of place in the project. Yeah. Can, can you imagine being, you know, one or one or two teenagers who got left out of that project oh, having, having, a, right. having already felt like really, you know, missed and out on so mates, much? Uh, all your mates are included uh, and you're not. It just wouldn't Where, where are you then? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, where's your photo? She didn't put, she yeah. didn't put me in. I got edited yeah. out of it. No. So, but, and, and, and then I'm you, happy with that decision. Yeah. Yeah. You entered... Um, um, I don't know. Was it one photograph? Because I've uh, Samuel, Jack, and Jamila for the Taylor Wessing Photography Portrait Prize. Was it? Was it yeah. all three of them together? Or so I actually entered six originally, okay. which I believe is the. I've been doing this for many years and been rejected for many years, so I know the rules <laughs> now. Um, so I believe for the Taylor Wessing Portrait Prize, unless they've changed it, you can enter up to six portraits, mm-hmm. either individual portraits or from a series. So I entered six. And at that point, the project was still in progress, so I hadn't completed it. I can't remember how many teenagers I photographed at that point, but I entered six, and then three were selected as the first prize in the in the project. Yeah, so uh, Jack, who was the first person I ever photographed for the project, who is my 
friends daughters now ex-boyfriend because actually there were quite a few couples they've all broken up by now um, not surprisingly when you're 16 or 17 um jack and samuel and jamila were the ones that they picked as the three that became the kind of winning out of, out of curiosity when i look at the, the 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 images you have out of the 44 i think you had maybe eight or nine on your website is um all the all the kids look with the exception, I think, of one who has like a, a little, she has a little bit of a hassle, but all of them are are quite serious. Deadpan is serious as they as they look at the camera. And from you know, from my experience, proms, that sort of thing, there's sometimes a bit of hamming up. And I don't know if that's because like you were with a couple or with a group. Did did most of the kids have that sort of serious, like gravitas sort of expression, or did some vary? And if it was all serious, was it a reflection of the times they were in? Or like how did that come about? Because they're all just very like. Yeah, they're quite, they are quite serious. I mean, I suppose in a way it was reflected of the times that they were going through and what they were experiencing. So they they weren't particularly kind of joyous times for them because they had been right. missing out on, on a lot. So it would have been weird to have photographed them all kind of with huge yeah. grins on their, <laughs> grins on their Why face. Why aren't you smiling? Uh, yeah. Um, but also I suppose I wanted to represent a kind of strength like an inner strength and maybe a defiance and a kind of resilience but I also wanted them well you know I hope some of them would also be hopeful because actually what I found when I met them was that they were full of ambition for the future even though their summer had kind of been taken away from them and that's why the project was called Lost Summer but also with my portraits you know there is an element of direction so I'm saying to them I don't want you know I want you to really think about what you've been going through when with this summer and the, the losses you felt or how you know I want you to express visually like how you felt in the last few months and I don't you know I don't say to them right look at the camera and when I you know press the or shut do the cable release I want you to smile you know I want them right. to be very I want them to be these kind of thoughtful portraits that you're really trying to figure out what these young people are going through so some of it I think was how they were anyway but also some of it is kind of directed from me to a, to a certain extent I can't pretend that I don't have any influence on, but but in terms of like what they were wearing or, you know, I had no, I had no control or say, I didn't want to in terms of, I didn't tell them what to wear. I didn't tell them how to do their hair or anything like that. But what I did decide was that I would photograph them all in these kind of natural surroundings. So they were almost framed by the trees or the local park or their backyards. So, you know, there's a really wide range of, of teenagers there some of them are from I would consider to be wealthy privileged backgrounds others are from very deprived backgrounds and I didn't want you to make any judgment when you looked at them as to you know their class or their kind of socio-economic status and that was why I felt that the kind of outdoor spaces whether it was their gardens or their the local parks it felt more kind of democratic for me to photograph them but yes there's always I mean, ultimately, I suppose as a photographer, you know, I am in control to an extent of of how of representation of how I represent my subjects. But for this, it, it wouldn't have felt right if they'd all been kind of beaming at the camera because yeah. there, was a, there was a sadness to what they'd gone through. And there was, you know, it was a serious time for everyone. So I was trying to reflect that in the in the images. And that's a challenge, too. I mean, I've been trying to do more portraits lately because I am I feel like I'm awful at them, you know, and you people square up to the camera and they just go and yeah. they put this like yeah. this this like middle school in, in America yeah. we have these 
painful school portraits at certain middle school and all of them are put in our family's albums. And we just look like we're just have these plastic, painful, frozen expressions that are just God awful. We call them the middle school face. Right. <laughs> and it's just like, stop me I, you, just, as a photographer. You're just like one is so artificial looking Two, just, just stop. Just don't, I don't, unless you really want to smile, I don't want that smile. I want you to be you, yeah. you know, um, because the reflex is like, yeah, for people yeah. who get people who are listening to the podcast, I'm doing this like square up really cheesy, yeah. cheesier than I usually am. But it's the look. Instagram, the Instagram selfie generation as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, they're very good at this. I shouldn't, we shouldn't, um, you know, just paint a broad brush, but they are no. to a certain extent more aware of. That's true. Like my son is 15. I'm more aware of that sort of visualization because of social media. I think than we than our generation was definitely without question, because they grew up with social media being a genuine factor. And when we were growing up, that was not ever a thing. Like we never really had to worry about our appearance. Yeah, that's true. And I was worried actually with a lot of them in terms of whether they would, I was concerned about whether they would like their portraits because right. obviously I'm not applying any filters. I'm not, I'm not, you know, Photoshopping them. It's, it's very natural. I don't, I don't do retouching. So I was a little bit concerned if some of them would be a bit like, oh no, I really hate that because I look really serious and I haven't got, you know, a filter. Right. Um, and I think some of them probably didn't, didn't love their portraits, but I know others were really, <laughs> they enjoyed the process of it and they liked, you know, they'd never seen a camera like that before. You know, they, they were really fascinated by the process and they appreciated the kind of craft involved in that. So ultimately it felt like the right way to work. But I also think that, your personality as a photographer often comes through in terms of the portraits you take. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I don't know how I would describe myself. It's really hard to do that, but I would say I'm a kind of quietly confident person. And when I'm photographing, I'm extremely focused on what I'm doing and I probably am quite serious and I'm not kind of goofing around behind the camera and like doing loads of gestures and faces. And I think people respond to that. So, mm. um, you know, you can see some photographers who are much kind of bigger personalities, they're more gregarious, they're more playful. And as a result, some of the portraits they make, you know, reflect that. So I think to a certain extent, it's difficult to say exactly because it's hard to assess how you are as a personality. Yeah. I do think for me that the subjects I choose to photograph and the way I choose to photograph people particularly and landscapes as well, there's a kind of quietness there that, that is a part of me as well. Um, I mean, it wouldn't say I'm a really quiet personality, but there's there's elements of me that I think come through in the final image. And it's not always easy to identify exactly what they are. But I think the way I work when I'm behind the camera, particularly with a large format camera, you know, you're on a tripod, you've got everything set up. You have to be very precise and very careful. And the people who I'm photographing, they recognize that and they respond to that. And as a result, you know, they're patient and they're still and they're quiet and they're thoughtful. And these are all kind of characteristics that I think I employ when I'm when I'm making a photograph right I recently I'll just share this one sort of anecdotal story because I, I struggle like I find myself trying to like taking portraits trying to get some expression out of people that isn't fake but is more real and so I find myself like doing a little banter like you said little banter with with people and like bad dad jokes being a dad I have a lot of bad dad jokes <laughs> and and then I started looking at the portraits being like, a lot of these, a lot of these folks, they're smiling. They look natural. They look great. That's awesome. But that's not always the situation they're in. So like this whole banter thing is, is like you said, casting artificial 
and product on the image. That's a reflection of my discomfort trying to get them to have behind the camera engaging with someone and therefore trying to get them to have a, a better expression to make me more comfortable. And that was a more reflection of myself and my process than it was their actual state of being at that point in time. And mm -hmm. so I'd look at these portraits and be like, this is not, is this actually them or is this just me getting a, a reaction out of them that I'm hoping to get a reaction out of to make me more comfortable yeah. in an uncomfortable situation? You can really take yourself out of a portrait yeah. as a photographer. Yeah. I think there's always going to be an element of you that is in that portrait. Right. So okay. the, the last event that I photographed, I do a lot of cycling events. It's my background. Um, as I would just try to tell people like to close your eyes, relax your face and think about a th like a thing, like what either what you've gone through, what you're going to go through, what's going to feel like when you're done, whatever that is. And like one at a kind of three, open your, open your eyes and look at, look at the camera and show that. Mm -hmm. And then the, the reactions, from that technique were much different because it centered them in themselves where they were at that moment, you know, great physical exertion, emotional exhaustion, depending on what the scenario was. And it got a much wider, uh, what felt to me more natural range of reaction because mm -hmm. I, I tried to center it on them and not mm -hmm. on me and my mm -hmm. banter and like performing, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was a much more interesting process to go through. When, so. when I was, when I was a kid on the great, great Yarmouth seafront, Eric, you won't know where Great Yarmouth is. I know, but they, I want they, you now. They used to have um, guys with monkeys. Can you imagine that? And you'd, <sighs> yeah. and they'd put a monkey on your shoulder, and you, you know, and you'd be like, taking. Yeah, <laughs> how about that? I don't know where that came from. That memory just suddenly <laughs> came into my head. Aspect, yeah, performance. Yeah. yeah. So, Alice, when um, you, you know you've been heavily invested in the just jump dragging you back before we get onto your uh -huh. um, most recent project in the last twenty minutes or so. Um, the filmmaking, which you're going to do some rough uh, screening this evening, um, you can you know hope that all goes well, and you can tell us a bit more about when we might be able to see that in, in a while. So this was your first experience into filmmaking, and and it happened over you know quite a long time, and you got heavily invested in it. How do you think, if at all, it's then affected, say, your um, lost summer project, and then your Islanders project? Did it have any influence on the way you made those portraits compared with your original X photo um, images? I don't, I don't think so. Cause obviously with the film, I am using, I'm using Sony equipment. I'm co-directing. It's made me realize that I'm really bad at collaboration. <laughs> oh, right. That's interesting. <laughs> not bad, that it's not, doesn't come naturally to me because with my yeah. previous projects, I've had total control. I've decided sure. what object matter. I've decided exactly how I want to frame it. I decided on the edit and the sequencing and then suddenly co-directing co a film where you're working in a team, albeit a very small team because we're working on kind of a shoestring budget. So there's basically me, a co-director, a producer, an editor. You know, you're having to make concessions. You're having to make compromises. You're having to film things that you don't always want to film or that you don't think are right. Um, so it's, it's a hugely different process in terms mm. of co-directing. I think if I had been just directing on my own, it's perhaps different. But also the filmmaking was something that I just didn't expect to happen. So although I've always been, I've always, you know, loved film, I've loved cinematography, I've been there, I've spent a lot of time, you know, watching film and reading about film. It was never something that I thought I would do or even that really appealed to me. It happened because of this serendipitous meeting with, with Vera, the nun. 
Um, and that's why it developed into what it has has developed into, which is a feature length documentary film. Um, but yes, it, for me, it's a very different process. So in terms of the work I'm making now, I don't think the film has influenced it that much other than for me to realise that I'm better when I'm working on my own and I have full creative control, really, because it's been very challenging for me on a personal level having to to collaborate, essentially. So you, you, it, haven't, you haven't thought, sorry, you haven't no. thought about um, homing in on a family or a group of people within your community and developing a long-term project, employing that, you know, like the relationship you built up with Vera, but with people closer to home, that's not something that appeals to you? Um, it, it's not that it doesn't appeal. I feel that that's not the way I work photographically yeah. very successfully. So it it's worked with the film and that's perhaps been partly through circumstance than anything else. But I enjoy these beating encounters and I enjoy... I mean, the research is a big part of all my projects. I mean, not so much for Lost Summer, but with Exvoto and with the recent project, Lee Solani, where I am documenting, you know, other cultures or other aspects of people's kind of human condition that I can't relate to on an immediate level. Like the research that's gone into that, whether it's been through literature or poetry or academia, that's been really important to me. And what I enjoy is doing the research and then visiting these places and seeing what happens when I'm there but it doesn't necessarily translate to spending huge amount of times there but also there is a practical kind of and logistical consideration which is when I went when I was filming when I've been filming the film which is now called Mother Vera you know last January the co-director and I went to Belarus for six weeks to stay in the monastery now that for me was massive because I've never spent six weeks solidly on a photographic project because I'm always worried how am I going to pay the bills how am I going to pay the mortgage I work as a commercial photographer so for me that was huge and actually what's been difficult working in film is that the co-director who is incredibly talented and very dedicated is like you have to give up your life for this film this is how filmmaking works you cannot have anything else going on in your life and because I've almost fallen into filmmaking, my point of view is, well, that's the, not a decision I made. I made a decision to be a photographer where I can spend a week here and two weeks here and a week here and build it around my other schedule. So it's been very difficult. And I have realised that to be a true kind of documentary filmmaker, well, not a true, but to be successful in that respect or to follow these people's stories, you have to be instinctive and you have to be you have to be able to drop everything. And I don't think I'm necessarily willing to do that I suppose and yeah. which is why with my photographic projects I'm very focused so I'll with my latest project for instance Lee Solani the Islanders I'm documenting kind of rituals and ceremonies and costumes in the Venetian islands in the north of Italy but also in Sicily and Sardinia and for those they were very much planned out the shoots and I would go for like a week 10 days two weeks at a time and then I would come back and kind of assess what I had so filmmaking doesn't the way that filmmaking works in terms of the level of it's not really commitment because I'm very committed to my photographic projects. But the, the fact that everything has to revolve around the film, like nothing else can get in the way. Um, you have to be every, that has to come first above and beyond everything. And I don't think I'm at a stage in my life where I'm not going to like go and live in a van so I can make a documentary film, whereas perhaps my co-director would. So this yeah. is where there are differences. And this is where I feel that 
perhaps these very these projects where you have to immerse yourself for weeks and months and years at a time are not right for me at this stage. Okay, in my life. Right. And that's very documentary photography as well. Like if you look at like what a lot of documentary photographers do, um, they, they, they embed themselves in, in those lives for days to weeks yeah. on end. And then they yeah. come up because if you're not there, when something happens, you yeah, missed, missed it. it. Yeah, you can't schedule yeah. those things, yeah. you know? And so it may make sense that, that especially with that balance that a lot of photographers nowadays have to do between editorial and commercial mm -hmm. that you have to like, you have to do commercial stuff to pay the bills. And you have these little slices of time for the work that means something to you. You can't be like, I can't show up to this commercial shoot or do this, this, I miss this work I'm being paid to do that will pay my mortgage because mm -hmm. this really special thing is happening with this documentary subject that I'm doing. You know, that's a tough balance. I it think. is. And, you know, I have huge amounts of respect as well for photographers and artists who are willing to do anything for their work. Absolutely. Um, and I think in some ways, my co-director would have liked us to, have, for instance, lived in the monastery in Belarus for six months or so. Yeah. And I can see why, because we we miss we did miss things because we weren't there the whole time. But for me, I couldn't be there the whole time or I made, yeah. you know, it just wasn't practical for many, many reasons. And that's why my photographic projects, I I kind of plan in advance when I'm going to make the work. And for me, I'm in a different headspace when I'm doing that. And that's how it works for me. But as you say, if it was, if I was working very much in a documentary or reportage way, I don't know, documenting a family or a community in that way over months or years, you know, you do then feel that to get to the level you want to get to, you do need to kind of be with them the whole time and live with them. And so, yeah, that that's not the kind of work that I feel yeah. like. Make totally, with this totally can't blame you, by the way. It's, yeah. <laughs> Alice, um, I'm, I'm very conscious of, of timings and I know okay. you go off for your screening and we do want to cover. I'm glad you've said it a few times now because I was fretting over the pronunciation oh, the, of, yeah, yeah. of the island. So you, I think you've pronounced it Lisolani. So, yeah, so for it's Italian... G GLI something, yeah. isn't it? Yisolani, which Lisa is the so, so it sounds intriguing. Tell us, um, I know it's been the subject of a, a now successful Kickstarter and it's being mm -hmm. published by Ghost Books. I know the pronunciation is G-O-S-T, yeah. which is oh. the same as um, Exvoto. Um, mm -hmm. And it's going to be, uh, I think you're still taking pre-orders, I believe, but you can correct me. And it's going to be published later in this year. But tell us about the how that project came about and um you know your um well just tell us about just tell us about it Alice because it sounds fascinating yes 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 um so the project came about I actually had an idea many years ago when I was a kind of travel photographer I used to do a lot of work for the time out travel guides that I may have mentioned before oh. and I was sent all over the place for these North America and Europe mostly and I would have to spend probably about a month in each city um and I got to know the cities very well because I was walking everywhere for kind of hours on end every single day of the month taking photographs of everything from sightseeing and different neighborhoods and bars and restaurants and all that kind of stuff so I got to know these places quite quite well in quite a short space of time and I remember I was doing the timeout guide to Venice and I actually had to go back two or three times because I did the guides over several years um, when they reprinted them and I remember the, the kind of idea for the project originally came when I was in Venice and I was waiting for a Vaporetto, which is obviously the, the boat, which is the public form of transport there. And I had been asked to photograph. Time Out used to give me a huge list that I used to kind of work my way through in terms of the photographs. And on this list was a cemetery island called San Michele, um, which is 
you know what I said it is this is an island that is 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 a huge cemetery but it's very atmospheric because it's set apart from the kind of main part of Venice and I remember waiting for the Vaporetto and the it was kind of enveloped in this mist and there were all these Venetians clutching flowers going to get the boat to the cemetery island to lay you know, flowers at the at the graves of their loved ones. And I just found this an incredibly kind of moving and evocative scene. And I thought, oh, well, maybe it would be wonderful to start photographing um, people who travel over by boat, Venetians over by boat, to the cemetery island to lay flowers. So I started in my head, I almost had a, already had the name for the project, which at that point I called it The Mourners, which I can't remember what that is in Italian. Anyway, so then I, I, so I kind of had this idea of a project. This was 20 years ago. So 20 years later, I think, kind of pre-pandemic well maybe I should revisit this idea because often these ideas linger in my head for for many years or decades in this case and I began to explore San Michele the cemetery island but also these islands that have kind of been abandoned in the Venetian lagoon and that are essentially kind of crumbling into the water and many of them are old psychiatric hospitals and old military bases that's amazing yeah and they've got this hugely interesting history because of the history of people coming to Venice and invading Venice and the rules of Venice and the different cultures so you know they they yeah they've all got their individual kind of histories and with that it's caught up in memory and identity and what it means to be a Venetian and all this kind of stuff but this was about three years ago and I soon realized that first of all I kind of worried about am I going to get really depressed photographing people of mourning who are mourning but also, then I thought, but also kind of what gives me the right to photo? I always am questioning what gives me the right to photograph these people? Like, I always feel like I have to justify it on a personal level. And I really started questioning my motivation for this. So it then kind of, I started looking at the different annual festivities and celebrations that happen in Venice, which are often based, of course, on um, religion and faith and saints. So I started investigating that. And then that took me through my research that took me down kind of further south in Italy to Sicily and to to Sardinia. And that's when I just discovered these incredible costumes and masks that are worn often with kind of during annual festivities. Um, A lot of them are based on Holy Week, which is Settimana Santa or Pasqua, which is Easter. So a lot of these costumes are brought out for these celebrations, but then many are also influenced by pagan traditions and folklore and kind of fables and fairy tales. And they're these kind of fantastical characters that emerge. So what happens is the local villagers, particularly in Sicily and Sardinia, and we're talking about tiny villages here in the kind of quite obscure hilltop villages. So they're not in the big cities I mean some of them happen in the big cities but the ones I explored were a little bit more obscure and I started through my research to find these amazing costumes that had been passed down through generations and that really spoke of the relationship between kind of man and the land and good and evil and the cycle of life and the seasons and the more research I did the more kind of amazed I was that these were still in existence and that were still so important to these communities. So a project that started about mourners in Venice kind of morphed into a project about, which is now called Lisolani, the Islanders, about identity and the kind of retaining of these traditions in these small villages, um, mostly in Sicily and Sardinia. Um, so yeah, that was the kind of idea. I mean, often with my photographic projects, I start with an idea and then it <laughs> it kind of doesn't quite go in the direction I'm expecting. Um, so I sometimes have to revise what I'm thinking. But a lot of this also came through research of 
literature and poetry and looking at films and reading historical kind of books and watching documentaries and stuff like that. So it was a kind of, um, it was a merging of all these, these influences that kind of made the idea more concrete for me, I suppose. We could, uh, we could talk for another hour on this, I know. And, <laughs> um, but um, so Simon asked me to ask you, mm-hmm. um, I think he was a bit worried that he'd sent you off last time we spoke. You may not remember he started talking about lenses and you were you were using your Sinar F2, oh, was it? And 150-millimeter yeah. lens. Yeah. yeah. And he said, oh, I think we maybe um, talked about, uh, you know, got, got her thinking about gear too much and maybe she got a bit worried. That, uh, and, but I think you had lots of other stuff as well. But did you then go off and uh, Simon said you went off and bought a, a Chamonix or a field camera? Is that what yeah. you're now using? Yeah, <laughs> I've no idea. I said, "How did you know that?" And I, yeah. maybe he's been he's been spying on you clearly yeah, more yeah. than I have. Um, no, I did because my sonar, my sorry, my sonar rather was was great. I mean, I have to. I've said this before. I'm, I don't feel I'm particularly kind of techy, but um, it was great. But essentially, I was lugging around a studio camera. I know. Yeah. <laughs> in a wheelie suitcase um yep. and it wasn't particularly practical so after i completed ex voto i thought okay let me invest in something that's a little bit more manageable in terms of carrying it for long distances and that is you know it folds down a field camera so i ended up buying a chamonix and i still obviously use the same the same i've still only got one lens Good for you. <laughs> so, um, i use one lens for everything whether it's landscapes or portraits i mean i have a backup but they're the same focal lens. yeah no and i think for, um, for all the same reasons we spoke about in the first show i think it's laudable that you're using only one uh, uh, one lens and uh, simon was trying to get you to buy an aero ectar or some other swirly <laughs> oh, yeah. type lens I, I think i do like the swirly ones but i it's <laughs> difficult. i mean it's difficult with my photography you know i love the tonality the depth that you get with large format absolutely and I love the way it makes me think I also but I also am aware that I don't want to go too far down the kind of effects route in some way Um, so the kind of photography I'm doing anyway because essentially the photography I'm doing it is it's documentary but I I don't know you could call it fine art documentary or portrait Portrait documentary 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 I don't want to be too reliant on the kind of effects I want to be using that format because it suits the way I work and it suits my subject matters, but I also don't want to be too swayed by the kind of lens effects and stuff like yeah, that. It's that's just fine, yeah. the, the subject That's enough about gear. We, we yeah. don't. The Chamonix has been great. Just in case So you, have you found the Kickstarter process and oh, uh, just tell us, tell us about the commercial <laughs> side of it and how that's gone and going and when the book being published um, and that sort of stuff? So the book, which is called Lisolani, the Islanders will be out in the autumn or the fall for anyone American and um, will be published, published by Goss Books again. I did have to do a Kickstarter, which I was very much hoping, well, I didn't want to do another Kickstarter because I did a Kickstarter for Exvoto, but unfortunately, I may have mentioned this before, this is kind of the model that a lot of independent photo book publishers yeah. are, well... They're not requiring you to do a Kickstarter, but they're requiring the photographer to stump up money. So essentially yeah. it's on risk for them. Now, having already published Ex Photo with Goss, I didn't have to raise anywhere near as much money as I did for Ex Photo. So, you know, in a sense that was good, but also there are realistic costs, like cost of paper has gone up by 40%, for instance. Mm-hmm. Like obviously there's import issues with post-Brexit. So there's lots of factors that have meant that, basically producing photo books is more expensive now than it ever has been. 
Um, now, the Kickstarter model for photographers is something that I'm quite vocal about in terms of I don't think it's a good model. I don't think it's a healthy model for photographers. I don't think it should really be required. But I also kind of understand on one level why the photography publishers feel it's necessary to ask the photographer to contribute. But I don't think it's a good thing. But I, at the same time, with this book, the work feels... Like in some ways, I feel it could be the most important work I ever make for me. Well, who knows? But at the moment, it feels like it's very important as a body of work. Therefore, I didn't feel confident self-publishing this body of work. Like I did self-publish Lost Summer, the teenage book, but that was a much kind of simpler book, I suppose, in terms of the production. And this, I felt that I wanted to go with a publisher I'd worked with before. They deal with the distribution, with the marketing, with the press. So with the you know everything so I don't have to once I have got a certain amount of money I don't have to really what, what about with it. like design for example yeah they the... do the design and okay. Susan Gost is a very well-known designer so I you know we work we're nearly at the end of finishing the design and I know I'm confident it will be a beautiful book and the production quality will be very nice yeah. Um, and they, yeah, so they include the design in that. Um, right. So they they kind of essentially do everything. But I think for new photographers, it's kind of unfair, like it was for me for Exvoto, to have to ask a photographer who is struggling financially to come up with £18,000 or plus £20,000. Yeah. You know, it's an awful lot of money. It's a huge amount of money. And I know it's very hard to make a profit in, in photo books, but I also think it's not a model that should be I don't want to kind of be an advocate for it. But at the same time, I know I'm being a hypocrite because I have kind of done another Kickstarter, even though I vowed I never would. So I'm, I'm pretty sure this is going to be my last Kickstarter. <laughs> but I hope, I think two is enough in anyone's lifetime. Well, so um, folk, I, folks can yeah. still place, sorry, Alice, folks yeah. can still place um, pre-orders. I think yes. I had a little poke around on there. I missed right. the Kickstarter, but I did look That's on the right. order. Yeah, yeah. So pre-orders are available via my website alicetomlinson.co.uk and will also be available on the Ghost website soon and really pre-orders are a way of obviously people you know buy the book in advance and that allows yeah. you to have the money for the production so exactly that's well you know it'll be it'll be a limited run because Exphoto has had a print now and uh, it's it sold know. out yeah yeah um, and it's going for kind of silly money so <laughs> which, which is a way to, to push for having a second run right yeah possibly yeah it may I be mean, just just saying you know yeah yeah, just... yeah we have kind of thought about it so maybe in the future um <laughs> we'll see but at the moment yeah I'm focused on this new body of work and yeah I'm excited about it there's already like there's a it's going to be shown in Italy which is where I really wanted it to be shown I think in Palermo next year it's been shown in in another part of South Sicily in the summer so yeah I'm at the um, moment really hoping it will be London in September, did I read? 7th oh, yeah. September somewhere? So that's right. Yeah. So the beginning from the 7th of September till the end of October, there is an exhibition of the work that will be shown at Hacklebury Fine Art, which is in Kensington in London, which is the gallery who represents me. So there'll be a solo show of the work well, there. Yeah. Jul Julie and I have a weekend in London that very oh, weekend. Yeah. That's good timing. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that very weekend, we're staying just near the Tate Modern ah, uh, for a great. couple of nights. So I'm jealous. We, no. we, we hope to call in. Yes, please. Um, and, and finally, the film, when might, is Ooh. that going on general release, limited release? Because I know these sort of documentary things yeah. probably won't be at your local view, will they? No. Well, it might be at your local R House eventually. Mm. I mean, awesome. uh, 
So there's a whole procedure in terms of festivals for these kind of arty documentaries whereby we have to not pitch them, but, you know, we propose them or apply to certain festivals. We're hoping it will be done by the autumn and it may be out in festivals in the new year, but who knows? We are hoping for cinematic release, but it, it's not going to be at, like, the Odeon Leicester Square or whatever. Like, it oh, will be limited, I think. I was um, hoping for my invite. Yeah, you will get an invite, but it may not be to a, a major cinema. But, yeah, we, we'll have to see. I mean, this, is again, is a new world for me, so it's all about... Like, it's weird, too. Like, the, all the film festivals, yeah. you know, when you do a documentary, like, are will you you be premiering it we only want movies that would be premiering with us so you have to be quite strategic about who you apply to so you end up ideally and being backed by sundance though isn't there a chance that you have a a leg up to getting it into and premiering at sundance well that would be the dream but actually having been supported by them there's no guarantee they say that's probably going to be one of our first choices but we may be a bit high (laughs) i don't know we'll have to see um i don't know at the moment it all feels a little bit out of our hands to a certain extent but yes um, we're hoping it will premiere at a fairly ideally a big ish festival in the new year yeah and then on to release Okay, so we'll 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 let you go here. We yeah. said we'd stick to an hour, and uh, we've kept you three minutes over. It's been okay. a it's been a wonderful pleasure to have you back on again. Well, and thank you for uh, me. if the book is anywhere near, or the body of work is anywhere near as powerful as X Photo, it's going oh. to be a surefire winner. Oh, and I look forward you. to uh, I look forward to seeing some of it in the flesh in London. Yeah, that'd be great. God, uh, God willing, I'm looking forward so, to the movie too. Actually, I'm, I'm oh, very excited to see that. Thank you. Mm. Yes. Well, thank you for having me, and I'll leave you to it then. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so, we'll have you on perhaps again. Now, when the movie's released or when other things happen. <laughs> if the film was ever released, I can come on and talk. Oh, it will be. It will. Be. <laughs> so, um, okay. Bye now. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. Have a good screening. Bye. Thank you. Well, that wasn't that fantastic. It's a shame we didn't have um, Alice for longer because I'd like to have spent more time about you know the kind of uh, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, relationships and things she developed with those islanders. But uh, wow, Ooh. there we go. Ooh. Yeah, well, and um, I mean, that's not to say we couldn't have, we, we do have a track record of having people back again. Witness yep. me. Sorry. Sorry, folks. <laughs> I just, I just don't go away. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm also super curious. I didn't get a chance to, to ask, and, and now she gets to think about before we ambush her with the questions again. But, mm-hmm. you know, having gone through like what she had to learn visually shooting video, cinema, cinematic is a completely different, like, format often um and whether or not when she came back to other projects it changed how she sees and frames things perhaps not how she yeah. works because she said it didn't really change how she worked but how she like, yeah. sees things that, that, would have been a, that would have been another bolt-on question really i didn't think of that at the time but uh, i was very conscious that we had to get on to lee solani as well yeah yeah and those so, um, are also stunning stunning those yeah. are stunning portraits so, folks, uh, yeah, look out for that and place some pre-orders with her. Yeah, because, for sure. Uh, she, she produced some stunning work. So, uh, so we, we've got a couple of things to talk about um, before we wrap up, Eric. Um, I want to talk a little bit about. I want to talk a little bit about focusing screens. Oh, um, <laughs> and you can talk a little bit about uh, what you've been up to. We haven't done this "what you've been up to" thing for a while, but you right. know. We've only had an hour of recording. So, yeah, what the hell have I been up to? You've been Um, photographing on this gravel, what's it called? The gravel gravel cycling. cycling. Yeah, yeah. And you dropped dropped a camera and you broke it. And you've you've been producing lots of wide angle 
sharp centre, blurry outside stuff, which must be some kind of in- inappropriate homemade lens. <laughs> inappropriate, perfectly appropriate, sir. So um, t- tell us tell us all about that little oh, project, then. Um, what the camera was and what's been involved in the photography. Well, it's, I've been shockingly sorry, folks. I've been I've been shockingly non-large format lately. It's okay. I think mostly because okay, like context time um for the non-cyclists out there in in the world um of which there probably are a lot anyways for context for non-cyclists cycling itself as a sport and as an industry has been dominated by people like andrew and i for forever basically white guys um with disposable income and it hasn't really varied from those from that track for probably over 100 years um so lately there's been this emergence of the last 10 years of a, of a venue for, for cycling called gravel, where you just get on a gravel road and you go. And it's been very approachable because it, any type of bike can do it. And you just throw a race or a bike event that's on gravel and anyone can come and they can ride. There's, there's no barriers per se. Uh, and the people who've organized them have been very, inc- uh, very inclusive from the get-go and inviting people who normally aren't seen in grout in cycling events or in the cycling industry, like, like bicycling advertises to fit white men and a little bit to fit white women. And that's kind of it not to get political about it, but that's, that's actually, it's more societal. Um, and then all of a sudden this gravel thing started happening in the last 10 years and you see people of color, you see people of, of diverse backgrounds, um, folks who've never felt welcome in cycling before suddenly like mm-hmm. coming out in droves and it's actually expanded cycling, not just in its demographic, but it's, but in, in what could be like for the cycling corporations, what they can sell and to whom. And so it's been the first genuine expansion of bicycling in its demographic and in its sales, right? Cause every time a new segment of cycling comes up, it's just poaching from other older segments, like, like mountain biking, just poached from road biking, but it's the same people hopping from different types. Well, right. Isn't it the, the stereotype was, do you have the acronym mammals where you are middle-aged men in Lycra? Yes, exactly. And they white, the, the, white yep, middle-aged men. Yep, in yep. And, and the mammals would just hop from, <laughs> from road bikes to mountain bikes to adventure bikes, but it's the same people, just the same size of the pie. And all of a sudden the pie got much, much bigger. Yeah. But then the cycling industry had to grapple with its own incredible whiteness and mm. bias and a million other things. And it's it's been really interesting to watch really conservative companies, really conservative corporations scramble to catch up to be like, oh, well, we're we're sponsoring a black rider, we're sponsoring a, a gay person, we're gonna do a non-binary event. Um and people who aren't skinny and like they're, they're scrambling to keep it up because if they don't, they're going to get punished. Um, and so it's been really, really interesting to, to go to these events and see like a media scrum around a bunch of, of you, non-binary. You, you'd rather they did it. Cyclists. You'd rather, you'd rather they did it with the right heart, wouldn't you? Right. Rather than yep. as a marketing exercise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the interesting thing too, is doing, um, not photography, but interviews of people who are involved in all this, you know, and, and some of them pointed out like former pro world tour bike racers who came up through like the typical, I'm a white kid from upper middle class background, whose dad was a pro racer, like through that development channel, which most professional cyclists come through. 
um, to hear them him say like, well, actually, there's a lot of good people who work in the bicycle industry who want to see these changes happen, but haven't. They have to sort of make this financial point to the upper level of corporations that this is the money they need to spend. We want them to do it for the good reasons, but in order to justify it, we have to justify it for the financial reasons. And so this has given them the excuse to to drive the change they've always wanted to make, but haven't been able to. Um, and so it's it's just been an interesting thing. Um, but in order to photograph that and and whatnot, I've 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 not used large format. I've um, been using initially like 30 well i did some large format i take that back like some some of the stuff i've been using large format for um but also 35 millimeter for portraits and then um i think because of the adobe experience Hmm. um a combination of the adobe experience and also my long love of panoramics from from joseph kudelka which if you haven't seen his panoramic work stop go see it his panoramic well, the stuff he did in Israel and places like oh, that, the Holy yeah. Land. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. I'm sure everybody who listens to the podcast, all five of you, are kind of tired of me waxing poetic about Joseph Kudelkas. Yeah, we've, we've mentioned we've mentioned him once or twice. Yeah, his documentary style panoramics are mind blowing, um, and so I sort of also have always wanted to explore that for like literally decades. I've wanted to do that, um, and I picked up, but because I make handmade lenses, it's really difficult. Most panoramic cameras are uh zone focus even the high end like the fuji 617s mm-hmm. zone focus mm-hmm. and it's hard to make a handmade lens that is accurately zone focused like on one of those cameras mm-hmm. so i found the graflex 3a slr the early 1900s first generation slrs all large format and that camera shoots um postcard five and a half inch wide uh or 14 centimeters for you folks who are sane enough to not use the empirical. Um, and uh, you can convert them to shoot six by 14 with an mm-hmm. S- essentially a giant boxy SLR to shoot medium format panoramics. And that's what I did. Yeah. Uh, and it was awesome until it dropped out of the truck at the last race in Kansas. And uh, for those of you who know Graflexes, you know, they're essentially it's a big wooden box. And if that big wooden box gets out of square, then the mirror won't go up and the shutter won't, the curtain won't go because it's out of, it's no longer parallel. Mm. It just, it just jams. So it fell out of the pickup truck. Oh, it hard. Did you, I just did knocked you cr- the entire box out of square. And that did was, you cry? Did I, you cry? I had a really hard time not crying. It was oh. two thirds of the way through the day. And honestly, it was the first time that camera had just been working. It'd been a little cranky. It's like the grease was old and like, it would be times when it wouldn't shoot because it was cold or whatever. And I'd finally gotten to the place where it was just like, just shooting. It was just shooting perfectly, no matter what, no matter what time of day, no matter what temperature. It was just fucking. It was perfect, and it's the first time the thing like after like literally six months of work to get it to the place where I needed it to be. First time, and it's dead. So you were <laughs> two using... thirds of the way through the fucking day too. So I had to stop <laughs> and like Wait. something else. Were you using the? ortho type film or whatever it was you were using before uh that i was shooting hp5 for an hp5 because i could pull it and push it this was a paid gig was it yeah yeah Mm -hmm. well done yeah so it was that and that work is up too by the way i can put it in the link but that that work is up um so i think you've been sharing bits of it on instagram and whatever and into facebook groups and things yeah yeah that work is up at at, at the the ravist 
Um, and also the other side note of having that humor around, I think as most of our, our readers knows, or readers, listeners, <laughs> is like when you pull a, an old vintage camera or large format camera out in public, people just like, well, what is that? You know, with that giant freaking Graflex, um, it gets noticed and it ended up having a magazine publisher, a guy who runs and owns American Flyer, which is a mountain, a quarterly mountain bike magazine here in the States. He saw me at an event that I was photographing and they're doing a feature on me in their first ever photo annual really? because of him seeing that camera and being like, what the hell is that? Who the hell are you? You have a press credential. What the is this? And um, being like, I'll publish your stuff. And they're doing a feature on me in their outlaws section of their photo annual. So, which is kind of cool. And of course, then that camera dies like afterwards. I'm like, son of a bitch. Is it fixable? Because you can send it to. No, it's the base. The whole box is just knocked off square. Like you'd have mm-hmm. to strip it down and like take the wood itself, like take everything out of it and then take the wood itself and resquare the wood and then reinstall everything. It is just like uh, a task. You know, it's it's less the mechanical task of like, oh, the shutter is broken. Let's replace the the curtain. And more like the entire box is out of true. We need a carpenter to retrue it square and then reinstall everything. So how did you, um, what was the uh, the build like for the lens? Was it a handmade lens? It was handmade yeah. lens. Well, it must yeah. have been a handmade lens because it's yeah. kind of shit. Because it's, it's me. Because how shitty is that what you just said? <laughs> no. I, I was going to say something disparaging, but then I, <laughs> no, I, no, I thought, well, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't build one. So <laughs> Yeah, you could. And, and it looks beautiful. I, I love the effect and it's... Uh, you know, yeah. it is. You're showing me something. You're holding. Yeah, it's a handmade lens. It's, it's. Um, is this the one you? Were, this isn't the one you were playing with with the Mamiya body. What was that? That was and you. Uh, stripped, you stripped the elements out. No, that was. Um, that's not. It's not the same elements. This is actually the same sort of what I call a recipe that I used for that four by five sliding box camera that I built at the start of the pandemic, oh, but yeah. just slightly different build. This one I actually have uh, an M42 aperture on it, so it's got a, a modern sort of aperture that you can change close, close up and down yep. yeah so it's That's not helpful, the, the water it? gates it's not the water gate aperture um it's completely disassemblable so you can like clean it and everything but it throws a, a big it throws at least a five by seven if not a larger it actually i need to put it on my eight by ten camera i need to be able to throw an eight by ten but it throws at least a five by seven uh image size and it's it's really nice i think frank if you're listening this is I think I might build one because now that I put it on a, the replacement for the, for the 3A is a standard Graflex D, sorry, sorry, Graflex B 4x5 SLR. So I'm going down to 6x12 panoramics, which hurts my soul. But, <sighs> um, but it throws a beautiful 4x5 image, this lens. So I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to build one for Frank Thorpe. So what was the, and send it what to was him. the, do- is there like a donor body that you used there? What was the, no, this is actually oddly enough because it looks is, quite professional. What you're this holding is just up. a lens it's hood. Certainly... This is an M42 to 52 millimeter lens hood, and then I just inserted oh. the the lens element inside the lens. So hood. you've got the lens hood. You've got you've got a single meniscus lens. Uh, this is two acromats, two matching two acromats. acromats, and then you've got the PVC the, pipe. Um, you PVC pipe. Is that where the app the no. So, so, so what here. did you go out and buy then? You must have gone out and bought the. I bought the lens hood. The aperture, the aperture bit. So you've got right. you're holding you're holding up a lens hood with a, yep. with, a with two lenses in a standard lens hood, which you've um, just forced it forced in or glued yep. in or something. Yeah, 
And then I bought the only difficult thing to really get is um, it's not that difficult. You just have to get them off of eBay and wait a few weeks for them to, to arrive, but an M42 aperture. So this is what you're holding up to the lens is a is a, a round ring with a with a with a built-in aperture with a built-in aperture yeah okay. and it's, and it's an M42 standard M, so that fits into your lens hood or whatever yeah. you've got there and then I just bought an M42 to M52 adapter right so this threads in the M52 adapter and then M52 adapter goes into the front and the back right the lens hood here and the PVC pipe on the back. And that's it. It's really quite simple. Wow. Okay. Um, well, but I'll take it back. Maybe. maybe. So you got your lead, you got your glass from Triple Shed, friend, from Fred. friend, Shed or something. Yeah, from Fred. Yeah, two three hundred sixty millimeter uh, acromats, coated acromats, and they throw really, they throw really, really uh, nice. With some uh, mathematical figuring to work out the distance between them or did you just yeah. know that no well it's sort of set because i've got this aperture to deal with right the aperture sort mm. of forces the distance you know you no matter what you can you know, have at least that that distance to deal with so but either mm. which way the two 360s will always make something close to 180 so you haven't got a piece of glass either side of the um aperture i do or have you do have so there's, a, you? so there's a piece of glass in front of it Okay, uh, right. That wedged makes into sense, the right. lens hood, and yep. there's a piece of glass behind it. Right, I can see. Yep. Pipe. Right now, I can see it completely now. Right. And then you've got, and then both of those screw into the yeah. Into the, and into then the I diaphragm. just, I just because it's you can take it apart. Um, it's fully mountable onto whatever um, lens boards you want to put into. Right. How clever is that? And that's that. So, okay. um, so yeah, I'm gonna probably buy this setup again. Mm-hmm. Um and make one for Frank to put on his on his uh Washington DC because he uses a six inch, which is just about this, and it'll work really well. And I'm super curious to see what he'd what he'd get with it. Awesome. It's a little slow though. It's like an F8 because this aperture's maximum opening is 25 millimeters. No, you can right? work with that though. So, you know, and he's his 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 brass lens is a is an F4. So it's mm-hmm. two stop difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um for his outside stuff or you know, things where he has more light, it might be interesting. But either which way, it, I just think it'd be fun to see. It'll be fun to see what he can do with it. Um, so, and your um, your work. I read your blog and photographs. They're up on this site called Radivist. Is that yeah? Is that a cycling site or is that? Yeah, it's a cycling culture sort of news site um, run by a guy named John. He found it a while ago, and uh, uh, he actually like the Radivist actually pays for work which is nice most cycling websites in public like they just they don't pay hmm. uh much if at all and then the cycling media definitely is very you know like like alice is saying like commercial work versus editorial work the cycling industry is such as that most photographers who work in cycling four-fifths of what they do is is commercial because the editorial doesn't pay shit and the editorial stuff is all like sorry folks fluff pieces because it's dominated by the commercial aspects and by the corporations who feed cycling. So there's nothing really deep. There's nothing super, nobody's doing exposés on Trekker specialized or, or like bad practices, because if they do, they'll pull the advertising from that magazine or that website and they die. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a very different world from the editorial world that I'm, I'm used to, or that I, I idealize. Right. 
Like I'm not going to the the Gravel World Championships uh, next month because I can't afford it because I don't. I need commercial work in order to afford to go there sure. because the editorial work won't pay anywhere close to enough to actually cover the expenses. Yeah. So. Okay. Um, oh, well, that's, that's brilliant. Kind of, Thanks for yeah. putting some context to that. Um, <laughs> Long while, I've been, while I've been chatting, I did um, I did email Simon and ask if we've got any emails, but he hadn't. But we did. We uh, have had one. We have had one donation to our coffee account, which we'll woo-hoo! we'll promote in a minute. But I've got an email uh, yeah. because um, screens. Uh, yeah. So I've been using. We've been away for ten days in the caravan, and I took with me just my Rolleiflex and some color film because you know you, you know that i've been getting into color printing and so so and color developing by the way right yeah and i love the i love the square format you know and i don't exclusively use square format clearly because i have a large format camera but i found the discipline of just having the rolliflex over that 10 days and just using that okay i had my horizon swing lens camera but that's just a gimmick really so the I, my main photography was with the rolliflex and the discipline of just having the one camera, one lens, yeah. one format was uh, was just really liberating, you know. And um, I, I did I did replace the screen a while back, um, but it was um, I'm still not overly happy with it. So I, I I bought screens from Rick Olson in the past. You know, he's a, a guy in the states, and some folks will know him. He makes them for um, for. Uh, medium format cameras by and large and they're called bright screens and the one they recommend for tlrs have a little um 13 mil sort of focusing bubble thing in the middle and uh i've i've had one for my rb67 and it's great so i, I ordered one for the rolliflex and when i was communicating with him i said because it, it wasn't rick olsen that the order went through to a guy called lance clark and i thought well that's weird but i'm sure it is weird past, i've had um emails from richard from uh, Rick Olson, it was Richard, really. So I emailed Lance and said, "Well, what's what's the story with your company? And what's Rick Olson? What, what's he up to?" <laughs> anyway, so I got this lovely email from Richard Olson, and he says, um, "So if you may, I'll read it because it is really interesting." And uh, you know, folks out there might not may or may not be aware of um, bright screens because he make he has them for large format cameras as well. But I'll come on to that. He says, "Hi, Andrew. Lance forwarded your email to me, so I thought I would drop you a line to fill you in a bit. I guess I'll start at the beginning. Apologies for the resulting boredom. No, it really wasn't. We'll get to the present eventually." So Rick says, "I first started cutting and selling focusing screens." Back around 2006. What started that was I had purchased a screen on eBay that was advertised as being for my Pentacon 6. Baby, my love. When, uh, when that screen arrived, I was a bit surprised to discover that it, it was 11 millimeters too large <laughs> in one direction and 13 millimeters too large in the other. Oh, come on. <laughs> this didn't strike me as a sort of situation that a typical photographer would find ideal. Yeah, understatement. So I decided to purchase the screens in larger quantities and cut them to fit a variety of cameras, which you'd have thought the eBay seller would have done anyway. Yeah. Anyway, if he said they fitted a Pentagon 6, but they were like 13 millimeters too big. Um, So that the photographers wouldn't be stuck doing it themselves. Well, they shouldn't be, should they? So he said that those screens were coming from China. Yeah. After several years, one of my customers informed me that Jim Lakey, the founder of Bright Screen, had passed away. 
the company had ceased operations and his widow had a large quantities of molded screens that were much better quality than the ones I was selling from China. More importantly, she had the injection mold to make them stored in a garage, oh. garage, <laughs> garage. <laughs> tomato, tomato, my friends. <laughs> he, he introduced us to one another and I began selling custom cut bright screens. Originally, alongside my lower-priced Chinese screens, and finally as my only offering. After having consumed all her old stock, I made arrangements at the end of 2017 to purchase the bright screen mold and put it back into production in the United States. I think this is a great story. I think being, it's awesome. a, being a plastics engineer as my day job, we should get him on. I had yeah. a relationship... I had a relationship with a good molding company in Ohio, about a four-hour drive from where I live. There were extra inserts with the mold, and over time we had added the split image bright screen MPD, go to his website, and the all matte bright screen MAT, again, go to his website, to the original MicroPrism Center bright screen MP, which is the one I've ordered for my Rolleiflex. Over the past two years, I have increased the range of camera applications by in, by purchasing a CNC milling machine and writing programs for more complicated screen shapes and engraving patterns. And he does. He has a lot of you can have it, um, your screens engraved with like a, you know, a, a two a thirds, rule of thirds thing or different grid patterns or no grid patterns. It's very, uh, it's, uh, it's very custom, customable when you go to his website. So Rick goes on to say, I will turn 70 next year. And it became clear that I needed to find a way to dial back on the amount of work I was putting into the focusing screens. I was fortunate. I was, oh, I've missed a bit. There we go. Sorry, let's rewind. Between, so after he bought his CNC milling machines, he says, between the increased range of camera models covered, increasing word of mouth publicity, and the arrival of the COVID outbreak in 2020, the volume of sales tripled, then quadrupled <laughs> from what it had been previously. I had retired from my day job in 2019, so I was able to handle the volume, but what I had, but what I had envisaged as a low-key retirement hobby <laughs> was becoming more akin to an unsought full-time job. So then he says, I'll turn 70 next year, and it became clear that I needed to find a way to dial back on the amount of work. I was putting into the focusing screens. I was very fortunate to find Lance Clark. So that's where he comes into it. Okay. He was an engineer employed by the molding company in Ohio, where I was molding the screens. Lance has the great advantage of being expert in the materials and processes involved in producing the screens and being close to the facility where they're produced. Last year, we began a training program in which Lance came down to Lexington and learned how to perform the secondary operations of cutting, engraving, and finishing the screens, and all the other details required to take over this part of the process. After several months, this, this spring in 2022, we relocated the cutting machine and other tools from Lexington to Ohio. Since April, Lance has been handling the cutting, finishing, and sales of the screens. In addition to the actual molding, which he had already been doing earlier. I'm still involved, although we are not in the same location. I'm providing technical support, helping to identify cameras in odd or special situations, 
and when needed, providing additional CNC programs to create new screen configurations. With this arrangement, I'm confident that Brightscreen will be able to continue to provide the same or better quality product as ever before, perhaps with some further new additions to the line for years to come. The quality of the, of the MPD screen has improved on Lancer's watch, and the MAT screen is a new addition, both indications of good things to come. On the note of the large format screens, unlike the medium format bright screens, the large format screens are not molded in the USA, and we do not possess the mold. For these screens, we are working with new old stock screens, which were molded in Japan several years ago. Our supply of large format screens is not unlimited, as is the case of medium format, but our supply is large, several hundred pieces. But unlike the medium format screens, all large format screens are cut by hand using fixtures and templates rather than by a computer program machine. Lance and I look forward to years of collaboration with Brightscreen. To date, the arrangement has gone flawlessly with the only visible changes being improvements in both product and services. I have no doubt that this trend will continue. Please let us know if there's anything you would like to discuss in more detail. Thanks for writing. Best wishes, Rick. So I read that and thought, wow, well, fantastic. I just asked for a little bit of detail and um, pretty much got his life story. I'm <laughs> sure if he if he came on the, on the show, he'd probably, be, I don't know if he'd enlarge on that, but uh, what, um, what what can I say? Are you, were you familiar with Bright Screen as a company? Not at all. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a I'm a fan now just because because Pentagon Sixes and like those are, <laughs> those are my jam, <sighs> my love. Um, at least in medium format land, if only they were even remotely. Well, they are, but they are su- they are super bright lenses. There's a link yeah. on his website to a comparison with um, BT Interscreens. Well, and they compare extremely favorable. I, when you looked at the review that someone had done, I couldn't really tell the difference between one or the other. So he, right. he, he was, before the pandemic, he was selling these screens for his medium format cameras for 80 of the US dollars, including shipping anywhere in the world. Yeah, which is great. And, uh, and now it's gone up to $100, including shipping for anywhere in the world, which works out about, I think I paid about 85 pounds. So there are cheaper options, but uh, you know these are very high quality and if you're looking to replace a screen and you perhaps can't find getting a maxwell i think these days they are still available but i think it's quite complicated to get in hold of them right and um you know rick's website is is there it's ready to go and it's clearly in good hands for the future yeah i mean and speaking as someone who at least at the moment like especially with these old like graphlexes and whatnot you know it's a struggle Sometimes it's just because the glass is dirty and you get a little bit better when you clean them, or even with the Pentacons, like it's just an, and also because I'm a glutton for punishment with homemade lenses, let's not forget that, but it is a struggle at times to get a fine focus to actually see through your ground glass um, and an older dimmer mirror. Because the other thing that we often forget mm. is these older cameras, like the mirrors don't stay bright forever. Like they <laughs> age too. And um, between an old mirror and an old dirty scratched up, aged ground glass it can be really yeah. difficult I'm just, my... I'm just dropping some f-bombs to drive simon crazy <laughs> but it can be can really difficult to focus I especially my, quickly i took my lens hood off well you have to take it off to fit this the last time i changed the screen but i was very keen to look at the the mirror 
thing, you know, inside the twin lens reflex. And, my, and I think there are some aftermarket sellers of replacement Rolleiflex mirrors, you know, because the, the, they're fixed, obviously, and, and uh, they can degrade over time. And you should have you should avoid trying to clean them with cloths and stuff because you'll just f up the you know the coating. But mine is pretty bright, so I just gave it a dust, and with a new screen, it's um, it's going to be good, I'm sure. Yeah. So but yeah, that's cool. Um, anyway, so keep us, um, keep us in the loop, like when they start when he starts to do large format yeah, stuff. Well, for um, sure. well he, yeah, I mean, he sounds like he's got large format. The other guy I've bought large format screens from, and and um, I'd recommend is, uh, um, uh, I'll put a link into the show notes. He's, he lives in Lithuania, and uh, v- Vigist, I think his name V I G I S T, and he makes uh, the last when I dropped my four five. Uh, back off my bomb camera and broke the screen recently i got a replacement from him shipped to the uk for 25 quid i think you know so Mm -hmm. uh, and and they're the same screens that uh, uh, go in the chroma cameras in the uk so that that's a good option as well if you're in europe or the uk so um so uh, have you been doing any large for well, hold on you 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 busted out a rolly have you been doing any large <laughs> format have we have we all meandered away from large format recently yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we don't care about large format anymore no i've been i have actually started my project i don't want to bore people with that so i've got this rather pede- well you know what do we photograph? We there's a joke about Australians will bet on anything, even flies crawling up a wall. You know, <laughs> so um, what's the most boring thing you can photograph? Well, that's in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? You know, you can photograph a, a load of water towers head on and call it a work of art and get applauded by it. You know, so we won't we won't go there. What's what's? Uh, but I, you know, I, I, my my work really photography photographically wise is is based in this area where I live in the Cambridgeshire Fens. Mm-hmm. And I look around for things to, you know, form little long-term projects with, and I've got a few on the go, but um, I've spoken, I think I've spoken on this show before about it. I don't know if I have apologies about the pumping stations Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, keep the, so these are brick these days, they're fairly nondescript brick buildings, some a bit more attractive than others. And they pump water from one part of the fens to another to keep it dry because it should be flooded really you know and uh, mm-hmm. to allow crops to be grown so on. and these are and and, and and the fenland areas are divided up into geographical areas managed and governed by local authorities uh, called drainage boards that's a <laughs> and, great uh, name drain I'm, so, I'm drainage board member so i live Eric i live Cathy. i live right i live right on the edge of the uh, middle level draining drainage board it's a bit like middle earth you know with um, <laughs> wizards That's and Tolkien awesome. and stuff. So I, I emailed the middle level drainage board <laughs> and said, um, "That should be a T-shirt." I, I said, "I want to, <laughs> I want to do this project of uh, with a large format film camera and making fiber prints in my darkroom of photographing in uh, not just close up headshots of these pumping stations, but set in the scenery, you know, with a with a bit of context in the landscape." photographing all your pumping stations, but I don't know where they all are. So a nice lady emailed me back and says, well, that sounds very interesting. <laughs> I think she was being serious. Uh, and here's a map of all where, where they all are. So I've, and she said, some of them are on private land. You might have to do some negotiation, but keep us, keep us posted because we're, we're really interested in what you, what you end up with. So I'll hold her to that. So I have been, I went out a few weeks ago to the first three locations that I thought were fairly accessible. 
and the weather was um, a bit of sun, a bit of cloud, you know, a bit of sky interest. It was late afternoon, wasn't quite sort of golden hour, but, you know, uh, I, I had probably things to do in golden hour, so I went out in the afternoon. And I made some large format photographs with the site, with the Toyo of three of these locations. Um, the only not, one of them I had to use my 90 mil lens, and I, the only one I had with me was my um, angular, super angulon, small little diddy thing, you know, mm. um, which little diddy thing, yeah. And it's got some lens separation around the edge. Oh, perfect. Uh, but I was, I had to, once it stopped down a couple of stops, it goes anyway. Um, I think even when I've shot it wide open, I, I, I couldn't really notice it, to be honest. Yeah. So I generally I was using the, I think I was alternating between my, my standard 150 lens and my 210 lens. And then the only other one I've got is a 90 anyway, but um, I've got a, uh, um, oh, the Japanese make, I've forgotten. You know the Japanese um, lens. No, no, no not, not Schneider. Not Nikkor. Yeah, uh, Ny Nikkor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but I didn't have that with me. I just had this little Schneider lens. So, uh, and the negatives look great. I, I was using Foma Pan because you know it's cheap and cheerful. And yeah. De developing it in a pyro-based developer, and <laughs> I, I haven't made the prints yet, but you know I'm sure they'll be fine. Uh, so that's so I started that. So I have been doing a bit. You know, uh, but I have, I'm, you know, I'm not just a large format photographer. It's a bit of a, bit of a, almost a sideline, really. I don't even know why I'm doing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I sent, I sent my, my, um, I sent my intrepid off to, to Wayne and Alana and they've been using it. And that was my main like four by five workhorse. So like some of those bike events I've, I've shot with that because it's just so light. You know, mm. and easy setup and 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 well, supportable. Is she, she done, finished her project yet? Finished no, that's a saga. The slave saga. Yeah, that got a little bit sidelined for a bit because of. Um, it's probably best to leave her to explain it, but because of some issues around, like uh, a great aunt sort of pulling back from the story, and saying, "Well, no, well, like having some discomfort around talking about it or having that covered." Um, okay and so she's which was which was difficult That's for her sure. because it's part of her family's identity too so it's mm. less not just about like delaying the project but also sort of reevaluating a bunch of identity that her family has been told okay. and grown up around too um but that camera is is still sort of off on loan with those two um is wayne okay now because we're talking uh, yeah wayne about... is he's home he got hit by a car didn't he yeah he got put underneath a car by on his motorcycle pretty much mm. Um, so he's in physical rehab and the project that the Smithsonian is funding for him to build an eight by 10 camera and big wall climb up into these old Anasazi uh, dwellings with mummies in them. Um, hmm. He's still hell bent for leather to do in September. So actually I have to, speaking of that, get on building a camera lens for that camera. Um, Cause he's commissioned me to build the lens for it, which will be super fun, super difficult to do. Uh, but once I have it done, I will have a camera lens that's going to perhaps be in the Smithsonian for a time, which is wow, kind of sounds crazy, actually. Uh, in some in some way, you'll live on. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I also have purchased an eight by ten camera. Um, oh, yeah, that, also, yeah, that one you picked dude, up for three hundred dollars, bucks, three hundred yeah. American bucks for a hand built, beautifully hand built. No, it's sort of like. 
it's like someone milled stuff like whoever did this was like serious mm-hmm. um with three lenses four film holders dark cloth i tripod as mm-hmm. well everything one of those big sexy dollars. wooden ones yes big sexy wooden tripods no no it's a it's a bogan it's a modern oh is it the big right. heavy modern bogan tripod my okay. challenge is i don't have any way to develop it like so i i mm. played around with using you know a constant agitation developer roller and everything but i haven't gotten any functional images out of it so i because i can't see what the hell's going on i'm shooting lithofilm because it's the only thing i can afford so i, I can't mm. really see what the fuck is going on so I've set the eight by ten aside for the moment until we get the darkroom built, and then I can just, or I can go borrow somebody's darkroom and trade develop the film. Are you building a darkroom at home? Yeah, we're. Yeah. I'm turning. God help me. I'm turning fifty this year. So for my fiftieth birthday, Heather's like, I'm. We can you don't look a, a day. Party. You don't look a day over sixty. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, it, that means a lot to me, actually, okay. especially after COVID. I'm, I'm glad that I only look ten years older than I am. Um, <laughs> But we could either have a big party or we could we could build a dark room. And I was like, dark yeah, room. Build a dark so, room. so we're we're currently like pricing the materials. We'll probably we'll probably put up the walls and do it ourselves because have a yeah, contractor would be what, too expensive. No, that's what I did. We've got uh we we picked up an eight foot long metal sink mm-hmm. on surplus that's just ginormous, but only weighs yeah. like a hundred pounds because it's aluminum. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll, I'll be able to do up to 16 by 20 wow. trays in it. Um, yeah. and then a friend, Kendra, uh, has a big counter. She's going to donate to it and a bunch of other darkroom stuff. Cause she has a, a dark room in her basement mm-hmm. that's sort of not that functional anymore, but she wants to print. Yeah. Um, and then I've got a Bessler 23C over there, um, that somebody else donated and a full, um, another friend of mine gave me a couple of years ago, actually something that somebody give it her it's a full you should see it i'll send you a photo it's a full like plumbing setup for a photo darkroom cold water and i know the sort of thing you mean yeah, yeah with the cold water and stuff. hot water yeah. filter yeah even this person all copper and this person even has a pressure monitor before yep. and after each filter well you need it don't you just say if it's got blocked yeah exactly i mean the, it's the full full monty yeah. and that's i think I've seen pictures. I don't know whether Wayne Setzer put something similar into his recently. Yeah. Might have been Wayne. So it's yeah. it's completely bonkers. Um, yeah. So yeah, and it'll wow, well, go in the so back the, wall. the Bessler twenty three C. What what does that go up to in terms of negative size? I think it'll do. I'm hoping it'll it's do. Not, I haven't actually checked. I don't know if it'll do four by five or not. I know for sure. Obviously, it'll do one twenty. It'll probably do six nine at least. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it. I don't know if it'll go all the way up to four by five, okay. um, which for me is a bit of a challenge. Doing actually, I need something that'll go up to five by seven, right? With those panoramas. Really? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you can do um, if you want to do six by seventeen. You need five by seven in larger. Yep. It lets you want to crop the ends off, but you can do six by twelve. I can do six by yeah. twelve prints, which then gets me questioning why I've got a six by seventeen back because. I can scan it, you know, using my lamography digitalizer thing. Right. But, but you know, I'm not into scanning, really. So. Yeah, and I'm not into printing, honestly. Like, I'm putting the the enlarger and stuff into it for the community aspect. Like Kendra, who's donating a bunch of stuff, she just wants to be able to – she doesn't really care about developing. She wants to print. Yeah. And she's a good friend, um, yeah. and she's donating a bunch of stuff to my darkroom. So 
I originally actually wasn't even going to have an enlarger in it. I was more interested in getting a big UV, a UV exposure yeah. to it and doing like gum oil prints and like yeah. cool shit you like want, that. You want a dark space, don't you? Yeah. Do things. And for prints, I wanted to do one-off gum oils or tricolor yeah. prints or that sort yeah. of thing. I have not that much. Or we'll start doing so. um, beautiful contact sheets, you know? Like yeah, exactly. Edward West, like Edward Weston did with exactly. a light bulb. So that's, that's more in the long run for me. I'll, I'll put the enlarger in so other people in my community can use it. Mm-hmm. But I'm more interested in building out like a big 16 by 20 UV exposure unit. Yeah. Okay. That's, that that's what a, I'm about. That's just that sounds a load of fun. So dope. Uh, let's um, more don't swear words that. for Simon. Don't, don't, Sorry, don't buddy. Say, don't more say bleepity don't. bleep because it'll be bleep. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, start. Let's start to wind down. Yeah. Um, we, 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 I realized we, we, we didn't ask uh, Alice for any shout outs, but it didn't seem it seemed we've never had a guest. I don't think we've had a guest that's left halfway through. So. I hadn't yeah. thought, we'll, thought about we'll email how we her might... and put her shout outs in the notes. How about that? Uh, yeah. I thought I didn't think about how we were going to um, transgress from that into the next bit of the show. So we leave a bit of editing for Simon to do. Hopefully it'll be uh, flawless and you won't notice. Yes. And he so, wanted to uh, that part out though, because there's no way to give a shout out to Simon. Who's awesome. Um, who I've been speaking to while we've been chatting. So uh, on, on, on that subject, uh, coffee donors, look, listeners, I know we're I know we're not as regular as we used to, but we are trying. It comes with age. <laughs> we're, we're aiming at once a month now, and um, sometimes it takes another week to get the show out. But roughly once a month, um, we're, we're going to try and churn these out. Uh, we, we may get more. We may get more yeah, regular yeah. eventually. But there we go. So we do have a, a donation site for helping Simon pay his hosting costs before he. Um, starts coming after Eric and me or sends the boys around. So if you want to donate to this uh, wonderful show, <laughs> all these wonderful the guests show. that we have on, uh, you can go to coffeeko-fi.com forward slash large format photography podcast, coffeecoffee.com. And we have had a donation. Wow. We haven't had Yay. any emails. We haven't had any emails. So Nobody wants we're, me we're to very, read their we're, we're very disappointed that we haven't got any emails. We'd love some emails from you because we know people listen, well, at least two people. So Simon says, no emails. In other news, we received this year's only donation. Woo-hoo. Come on. Six pounds from Michael. Uh, sorry, Michael, I don't have a surname. He says, your per- podcast has been the perfect blend of stimulation and relaxation. <laughs> <laughs> we, like to, we like to help. We like to stimulate and relax you. For a, sta- <laughs> for a stay-at-home parent of a toddler. Oh, yeah. You need oh, to stimulate it. Yeah. Maybe relaxation. Please, Please, please keep it up. Well, we're trying. Okay, yep. we're, yep. we're, we're trying. trying. We we're have trying. Um, we we have some thank interesting you, guests. We, thank you very much, Michael. We have some interesting guests lined up, and um, I should be talking to Eric later about yeah, um, yeah. about the. I'm, I'm going to ask Joshua Paul if you're listening. Mm-hmm. You're next. I'm getting, yep. You're coming well, on, um, buddy. We'll, uh, we'll we'll look for maybe a month's time. So, Eric, um, any shout outs? Well. I mean, you know, it gets boring, but for other people, but not boring for me, Heather. Um, I mean, in particular, it should be less boring for other people for the shout out because she's like, I'm going to build a dark room. Uh, I was mm. like, oh, okay. Yeah, you've got to have so, buy-in. You've got to have buy-in from. Well, in this case, she's she was more like, it wasn't me. It was me having to buy into it because she was like, I'm building you a dark room. Okay. Um, so, wow, yeah, that's... no, it wasn't like, honey, would you build a dark room? She was more like, hey, it's your birthday coming up. We're building a dark room. Um, I think mostly because she wants me to be able to, to shove all of my crazy sh- into one spot and not have it overflow everywhere else. Little uh, does she know that that's not going to work. But nonetheless, it'll at least allow me to, to 
dry my film in someplace other than the guest bathroom shower. Um, so I, I suppose there's that. But yes, Heather, for sure, for those things. Um, and then I think all of our guests, I mean, Alice, I thank you, Alice, coming on. Um, and for you to having her come back on, I wasn't familiar with her work and her work is really, really, really lovely um, and is something that I plan on looking at more to draw more inspiration from in terms of how to, to do work. So, yeah. um, and I'm really, re I'm very, I keep saying really, really, but that's too bad. Uh, intrigued by the movie that, that she's doing. Like, I want to see the rough cut. Yeah, Alice, if you're listening, I want to see the rough cut. I won't share it with anyone, but I want to hmm. see the rough cut. So the hint, um, hint, hint, hint. There's some great YouTube stuff of Alice being interviewed by a sister who's, I forget what her sister does for a living, but she's, she, she did a great interview and she wrote, she wrote the introduction introductory essay in ex voto uh, cool. as well. And what I liked about the essays, the two essays in ex voto is that they weren't full of artistic bullshit, you know, and con concepts that I didn't really understand because you know, they weren't trying to be pretentious. There was none of that stuff in there. And so I applauded her last time round about the quality of the writing as well as the photography. The only thing is it's um, uh, the writing is really hard to see because it's on black paper and it's on like gold, gold lettering. And you have to, what, is there any, actually any writing here? So, so I'll give a shout out to um, someone we really ought to have on the show, um, except that we've had a lot of wet plate people on. So <laughs> I haven't yet reached out to him. So uh, Steve Legrease, uh, who lives Suffolk way, I think a friend of mine, Jimmy Hickford has, uh, has met up with him a few times. Uh, Steve uh, shares stuff in the large format photography podcast, Facebook group, and he's been sharing some uh, 10 by eight wet collodion ambro types. So that's um, Damn. photographs on, uh, on glass, of course, probably with a black background on, and he's been photographing beautiful gardens in Suffolk, which is, you know, people in England, people in Great Britain will know where Suffolk is. Eric won't know where it is. No idea. It's over, over on the East Coast. But uh, yeah, and these have got their own particular charm. They're striking images because of the ortho, ortho nature of the image, I guess. And, you know, they've got the weird stuff going on in the sky, which is down to coating, I guess. But they're beautiful. Steve, if you're listening, I've really enjoyed looking at your wet collodion amber type plates of gardens in in suffolk and at some point we will have you on to chat about them yeah works for me so that's good isn't it right yeah. so we've done shout outs um alice oh you've gone you can't do a shout out i've done a shout out eric if somebody does want to email the show where should they send an email to that was not the question i was expecting they should send it to <laughs> large format photography podcast at gmail.com they really should and we they miss really emails should. we miss emails i know I miss, every I, miss, we're not... I miss knowing that people are curious about things i know yeah yeah we're, we're obviously become irrelevant to people's lives now they don't <laughs> they don't feel the need to write in <laughs> so um yeah where can people follow you eric if they have uh, a, just a mind, a mind to yeah, if they're crazy enough, the Instagrams is pretty much still where I do stuff. It's yeah. And if they want to look at your cycling photographs with inappropriate lenses and links to the Radivist, I think you've shared. Right. I read your blog. I must have got it from an Instagram link. Yep, you did. You did. Um, but the Instagram link is E-R-I-K-H-M-A-T-H-Y. Um, that's where 
and there will be more lens build photos coming soon because again i have to build wayne's eight by ten um but also uh lots of photography stuff and then the radivist uh is the t-h-e-r-a-d-a-v-i-s-t.com and then you just search search for my name in there but i'll i'll we can put some stuff in the notes we can follow and, we can um... We can indeed read the notes, and you can uh, you can find me in all those social media places apart from TikTok because I don't know what that is, and um, I'm always quite fancy doing a TikTok video. Yeah, why do you seems to be that's the for thing young people. It is for young people, not for us <laughs> old people. So you can find me. I think I'm just Warboy Snapper in most places, or my name Andrew Bartram in others. You'll find me anyway. Music was and is uh, by Kevin McLeod. Um, the, the ever lovely and much admired by everybody uh, tune called uh, Two Finger Johnny. And um, Alice, yeah, if you're listening, thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. And Eric, it was good to catch up. We haven't done a yeah. catchy uppy, catchy uppy thing in a while. Simon, sure. you need to come back on and do a catchy yeah. uppy thing. Dude. Yeah. yeah, for sure. All right. Miss, miss, miss you, Simon. We do. We miss you. So there we are. Thank you very much, everybody, and we'll see you shortly with uh, with another with another show. Cheers, Eric. Cheers. Bye. See you.